Welcome to the podcast of ideas. This is a recording of the opening remarks from a debate, Medical Dilemmas, Who Decides, which took place at the Battle of Ideas Festival 2017. The chair is Dr Fiona McEwen. So this debate is about medical dilemmas, who decides? So I'm going to just quickly, very quickly sort of set the scene for why we thought this was important um, and then introduce the speakers. So you'll probably all be aware of the Charlie Gard case um, for anyone who was living in a cave at the, end, at the beginning of the year and somehow missed this case. This was a very um, seriously ill baby who was being looked after at um, Great Ormond Street Hospital this, there was a, a huge disagreement between the, the parents and the doctors about um, you know, what was the appropriate way to, to treat him. Um, the doctors thought that further treatment was futile um, and wanted to withdraw treatment and allow him to die. The, the parents um, disagreed with this. They wanted to take him to the US for experimental treatment. Um, and ultimately, the, the courts had to decide. And it was all quite a drawn-out process. Um, but I don't want this debate just to be about that case. You know, there's obviously been a lot of discussion about the ins and outs of that particular case. So while we, you know, we'll talk about that, um, I want us to, to think sort of more broadly about, you know, you know, these sorts of cases more generally. It seems to be the case that these sorts of disputes are becoming more common. So I think it's important to think, you know, why is that and, and what's going on. Um, but of course, there's other types of cases where there are disagreements between um, medical experts and medical professionals and, and patients. Um, so, you know, for example, um, there are tre treatments where uh, NICE, the um, National Institute of Clinical Excellence, decides that a particular treatment is maybe, you know, it might work for some patients, but maybe it doesn't work well enough or for enough patients that it's worth um, making it available. And there are patients that disagree with that. Fertility treatments in another area where there's often a, you know, a huge amount of disagreement about you know, who should have access to that and for how long and, and in what circumstances. And then there are sort of contentious diagnoses like chronic fatigue syndrome and so on, um, where there can be you know, really um, marked disagreements between patients and patients' groups and, and medical experts. So I think it's worth thinking you know, more broadly about some of these you know, issues where, where there are disagreements. I think the other thing that's important to bear in mind is that there seems to have been a change in the medical profession from the idea of paternalism, that the doctor knows best, to the idea of shared decision-making. Um, so the NHS, uh, sorry, the, um, the government recently um, which is some um, consultation documents are looking at this and the idea of shared decision making and they describe patients as being experts in their, in their own sort of way, experts in their own symptoms and, and um, conditions. Um, so we have this sort of move from a model of you know, doctor up there, patient down there, doctor taking responsibility for the decisions to the idea that both patient and, and doctor are sort of experts and, and there should be a discussion between them. So I think this probably fundamentally changes the way that, that you know, these sorts of decisions are, are handled. I'm just going to move on to introduce our speakers at the moment. Sorry, I have to apologise. My voice is just about going at the moment, so I'm hoping I don't have a disastrous Theresa May-type experience here. And just to warn you, it might happen. Um, so, first of all, I'll introduce the speakers in the order that they're going to speak. Um, so, we have um, Sarah Barclay, first of all, who's the founder of the Medical Mediation Foundation and co-director of the Evelina Resolution Project, uh, which provides mediation and conflict management training to hospital staff. Um, so, obviously, she has a, a lot of experience of exactly these types of issues arise when, when there are, you know, these real disagreements between um, parents and, and doctors. Um, then after that, uh, Professor Ranan Gillen um, is going to speak. Um, he's a retired NHS GP and an academic in medical ethics. He's president of the Institute of Medical Ethics and emeritus professor of medical ethics at Imperial College London. And he's written and spoken on end-of-life issues in general and specifically on the Charlie Gard case. 
Um, then we'll have um, Dr. Frankie Anderson, um, who's a psychiatry trainee um, and previously was a neuro re rehabilitation medicine trainee um, and has you know, fairly direct experience of some of these difficult cases where, where these sorts of hard decisions have to be made. Um, and then finally, we'll have Professor Simon Wesley, who is Regius Chair of Psychiatry at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience at King's College London. He's President of the, the Royal Society of Medicine. He's immediate past President of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. He also has a knighthood. And I'm pretty sure with all this royal connections, he must be virtually royalty by now. Um, he's been, <laughs> uh, Simon's done some, some interesting work on... Um, Things like unexplained symptoms and syndromes, like chronic fatigue syndrome um, and Gulf War syndrome. Okay, so uh, first of all, Sarah, if you can start us off. If you just pull the mic. Yes. Thanks very much. So I, I thought I'd start a little bit about talking briefly about the case of, of Charlie Gard because it was one of the longest-running public battles. I think we've seen public confrontation between parents and health professionals about whether a child should be allowed to live or be allowed to die. And, and during the many weeks that that case was in court, I can't have been the only person who thought there must have been some other way of trying to resolve things um, than without being in the sort of glare of a very painful public battle that in the end involved even the Pope and Donald Trump. When you get to that point, you think, surely there must be another way around. And, and it turned out the judge thought exactly the same thing because in his two final judgments, he said very specifically that he thought in cases like this in future, they should be mediated. Mediation might not be successful, but what it would do is allow both sides to be able to listen to each other more clearly, to understand more about where each side was coming from, and hopefully to narrow some of the differences between them. But I'd like to talk briefly about where and why some of these cases arise in the first place, because I think we've reached a bit of a critical point in the sort of in the debate about how medical decisions are made, um, about who makes them, and about where the balance lies between the rights of parents and patients to expect and demand treatment, and the rights of health professionals to do what they came into medicine to do, which is for most of the time good, not harm. And the guard case is certainly not the only case, it won't be the last. Some of you might remember the case of Asha King in Southampton a couple of years ago, where there was a little boy who, with a brain tumour whose parents took him away from Southampton Hospital and took him abroad for treatment, which they believed would be less um, intrusive and cause fewer side effects. Um, and before that, we've had other cases, uh, Neon Roberts, other cases of people with, with children with brain tumours. There is one of these which emerges into the public domain every 18 months or so. And we know that at this moment, there are other cases going on in other children's hospitals all over the country where parents and health professionals are trying very hard to keep the lines of communication open and trying to avoid ending up in court. So I've spent the last five years as a mediator working in the NHS, teaching and working with health professionals to try and avoid conflicts with parents and mediating between them if relationships break down. But I spent the previous 15 years reporting on the NHS as a medical correspondent for the BBC. And some of the, the films that I made were about cases quite similar to the case of Charlie Gard, 
um, stories which essentially involved really private and difficult human, ethical and medical dilemmas in which parents and doctors had been unable to agree about what was best for the child. And that was often because actually there was no best and there is no best. Um, only the prospect of a much-loved child dying sooner rather than later. And during my years as a journalist, I spent many hours talking to doctors, nurses, families about the incredibly difficult situations they found themselves in. Always stories about human beings, essentially, stories which have become public, but were really all about profoundly complex and often very tragic human dilemmas. And I thought there must be a better way of trying to support all sides when they found themselves in that situation, which is why I trained as a mediator to see if mediation could help in some of those difficult cases. So what do mediators do? Essentially, we help people to listen to each other. And when conflicts arise, that's the thing that tends to get lost. It becomes very hard for people to listen to each other and to hear what, what they're saying. So mediators actually help people have conversations that they would find very difficult, they might find difficult to have, or actually more often they might avoid having because they feel so difficult. And I'm very struck when I'm asked to mediate a case um, in, in perhaps a less formal way when relationships are broken down between parents and medical teams. I'm really struck by the fact that everyone will say to me, whether it's parents or health professionals, they're just not listening. And I think that's what conflict does. It makes us uh, become more entrenched, it makes positions more stuck, and, it, and eventually it makes private dilemmas become public ones because the battle lines get drawn. Um, and I think in the case of conflicts involving medical decisions, it's not actually hard to see why there is so much conflict that arises. Because uh, these are conversations about life and death, about hope and despair, and when it's appropriate to stop hoping, about ethics, about choice, about when to continue treatment, when to start, when to stop, and of course in the Charlie Gard case, when a child should be allowed to live or die. And all too often, I think the victim of the conflict Certainly in cases like the Guard case and the Asher King cases, the child themselves at the centre of it, that is the person who gets lost as these conflicts begin to escalate. Um, and when they, they arise and they become very public battles and they end up in court, the impact on everybody is enormous, but actually we only get to hear one side of the story. Um, and the other side, which we don't get to hear about because of confidentiality, is the impact on the health professionals at the centre of it, um, who have come to the point where they believe that they're no longer doing good, which is what they came into medicine to do, but they are actively doing harm. And when nurses say, in particular, we feel that the treatment we're giving is akin to torture, actually, I think we have to listen to that, and that is often what they say, and that is not what we get to hear. So these are, in a sense, the voices that stay silent because they have to, um, but it doesn't mean the health professionals who were involved in these conflicts don't suffer too. I think it's not a coincidence that um, training in human factors and resilience and resolving conflict is now very, very high up on health professionals' wish lists for training um, because the impact on them is enormous, as the impact on the families at the centre of these cases is enormous too. So 
what is it that makes us feel as individuals that we can accept what a doctor is telling us about the future or that we can't? And sometimes things tip one way or the other. What makes us feel that we need to challenge something to, I think, as people will often say, leave no stone unturned if you're a parent and you want the best for your child. Um, I think fundamentally a lot of it depends on trust and a lot of it depends on communication, on the way in which health professionals build or are not able to build relationships with patients and families, or the actual words that are used with parents um, when they're being told that we think there is nothing more that can be done, um, there is no hope, it's time to stop. How those conversations take place and the words used are absolutely critical sometimes to whether something develops into conflict or resolves itself. So it, it often feels to me when I'm asked to mediate that sometimes health professionals do a little bit too much of telling and explaining and not quite enough of listening, exploring, asking, letting silence happen, not filling the gaps with words. And I think that's often because not only are those conversations incredibly difficult and painful, but often the people who have to have them are not actually trained in how to do it. So I think the challenge we face is to help patients and parents and health professionals talk to each other more openly and honestly, to provide, if we can through mediation, a space in which they're able to listen and hear each other, even if they don't always agree, um, and allow the patient or the child in these cases to remain the centre of the conversation, not the victim of a battle in which armies are beginning to muster and battle lines are being drawn and social media is being brought in to help fight the battle, that actually we want to help those conversations take place in a safer, more neutral space. And I think, just to, to conclude, this needs to happen alongside a much more open and honest conversation about what we, as patients and parents, can reasonably expect and demand from an NHS so obviously stretched and from health professionals sometimes so ill-equipped, not through any fault of their own, um, or without the confidence to have the sort of difficult conversations um, that we would be having in cases like the Charlie Guard. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, uh, Ronan. <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, <clears throat> the first thing I have to say, so as not to tar other people with the, the brush I'm about to wield, uh, is I, I'm speaking personally, not on behalf of any organisation. Um, and the reason I say that is that I uh, actually here want to focus on, uh, on an aspect of the issue about what should we do in general when doctors and patients disagree and when is on the issue when doctors and patient and parents disagree about the treatment of, uh, of a child and I'm particularly concerned with the Charlie Gard case because I think uh, the wrong decision uh, was made. Uh, I think in the end I think the wrong decision was made by the courts. Um, uh, I don't, uh, that doesn't mean to say I disagree with the system we've got. I think we've got a good system which is that uh, you try and come to an agreement where you, your patients or your relatives disagree with you, with, with the relatives disagree with you as a doctor, um, and you try and come to an agreement, you offer alternative uh, approaches to try and come to an agreement, uh, and I think most doctors are really keen, I'm sure, apparently all doctors are, are really keen to avoid going to court, but if you really, in the end, can't come to an agreement, then I think it's quite important to have 
Uh, well, uh, a refereeing system. I think the court system is, as it were, society's referee in these circumstances, and I think it's a, it's a good system to have. But that doesn't mean to say that all the decisions that courts come to are good decisions, and I think that in this particular case, uh, it was a bad decision, and I just want to briefly argue why. Um, uh, uh, we can discuss more broadly uh, afterwards uh, about the, the broader issue that, uh, the, of this whole session. Uh, why? Because um, <coughs> essentially it seems to me that uh, doctors are there to offer advice, and they're not there to issue orders. The, the old idea of doctor's orders, very old idea, forget it. Um, but on the other hand, I think, uh, and it's possibly a particular problem in, uh, in paediatrics, uh, paediatricians here will be cross at this idea, uh, that, um, that actually they know better than uh, relatives about what's in the best interests of the child. And uh, so if the relatives disagree with them, uh, then it's time to, um, to muscle in, as it were, and make sure the child is properly protected. Uh, it seems to be, on the, under, on the contrary, that the role of the doctor here is to give advice to the parents, but that the normal arrangements in our society is that parents are the ones who make decisions about their child's best interest, and those should only be taken away for two basic reasons, ethically speaking. Either because uh, substantial harm is going to happen to the child, or because substantial injustice is going to happen to other people and typically in the area of distributive justice, that um, uh, doing something for the, the, a particular child will actually take away a lot of benefit uh, from uh, beneficial treatment from other children or other patients. Now, in this particular case, I don't think either of those things uh, applied. As far as justice issues are concerned, um, if, of course, the NHS was going to have to pay for very unlikely uh, to benefit treatment, um, uh, then I think the, you know, the opportunity cost problem would have arisen. But that wasn't the case. They'd, risen, they, they'd raised vast amounts of crowdfunding, so they would be able to pay for all the proposed treatment for Charlie Gard. So that, as it were, justice issue, distributed justice issue, doesn't apply in this case. What about the substantial harm? Well... The substantial harms that were proposed, were talked about by the doctors in the court, was the sort of harms that are routinely administered to children hundreds and thousands of times a year in keeping them alive on ventilators. It's unpleasant, uh, you know, being suctioned and turned and physioed and so on. Not a nice thing, though they can be ameliorated by, by medications. And they were being ameliorated by uh, medications in this case. The case was made more complicated because um, uh, the, the child was substantially brain damaged and uh, it, wasn't, it was probably the case that it couldn't express any distress it was having. Uh, but nonetheless, the distress that was proposed and thought to be likely, that's as far as it got in the original case, uh, was the sort of distress that, in, that uh, is involved in ordinary uh, um, ventilator therapy. Uh, so the idea that this level of distress should be regarded as child abuse, 
That's the sort of level of harm where it is reasonable to take away a parent's right to decide on what's in the best interest of the child uh, seem to me absurd. Um, if that's the case, then all over the country we should be taking court, uh, children to court, uh, parents to court to decide uh, whether indeed uh, the, the, the ventilation should be allowed. Um, in normal circumstances, uh, the, the ventilation is allowed because the idea is that keeping people alive is a jolly good thing. Now, I normally argue against an excessive concern with keeping people alive, um, but uh, I also argue in favour of allowing uh, parents to exercise their normal rights and responsibilities. And it didn't, doesn't seem to me that the sorts of levels of harm that were being postulated, no evidence that it, that, that it was actually happening, it might not have been happening, and there was certainly no evidence, I read the judgments fairly carefully that it was more than that sort of harm that uh, normally occurs in ventilator therapy was uh, going on. Now, the, the judge said he was making an objective judgment. Uh, well, I challenge that, and I'll just mention that right at the end of this short uh, account. But, um, but the idea that, uh, the, that uh, these parents were abusing their children, uh, their child, uh, just seemed to me totally unsustainable. Now, it, it, it can be argued, was argued, well, yes, okay, it was only the sort of levels of harms of ventilator therapy, but nonetheless, uh, those harms are not justified unless there's a suitable benefit to counteract them. Well, that's exactly the issue at, at, uh, at stake here, isn't it? What do we mean by benefit, and who should decide the, the benefits involved here? And the assumption all the way along is that the doctors should decide. The doctor said there was no benefit here, it was futile treatment, and they weren't going to do it, please. And would the court authorise them not to do it? I fully support the, the, the system of uh, the court system saying, no, the doctors do not have to do something that they consider to be futile. I hate that word, but uh, non-beneficial is what it means in law and as much more um, peaceable sort of word, non-beneficial and causing some harm. So I don't think the doctors should have been made to um, do this treatment, though frankly, if I'd been the doctor, I would have gone along with it. But okay, let, let them decide. But what I don't think the courts should have done is said, not only do you not have to do this, uh, but no other doctor should be allowed to do it. Uh, suppose other doctors were deeply committed Roman Catholics of a certain persuasion or Orthodox Jews of a certain persuasion or Orthodox Muslims of an Orthodox um, persuasion who decide, believed that the benefit is... Um, whoops, I'm going... Um, I'm going to stop. That the, the benefit is, is of staying alive. Uh, it seems to me that the idea that the court can objectively say that isn't a benefit is wrong. Uh, and the second uh, point, which I'll finish on, is that um, uh, the idea of going for a very low probability of benefit that this proposed uh, treatment undoubtedly offered, uh, people vary in how much they're prepared to accept horrible risks for very low probabilities of benefit, especially if they're going to stay alive. That should have been honoured. Okay, I'll stop. Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, as
can you hear me? Um, so as Fiona said in her introductory remarks, um, I am currently a psychiatrist trainee, um, but my background is neurorehabilitation medicine, um, which means that I work with patients with life-changing brain injuries, often in low awareness states or in persistent vegetative states. Um, however, for this discussion, I would like to widen the debate beyond Charlie Gard, um, however profound and personal a tragedy that this was, um, to unpick another aspect of the blurb, which I feel is key, um, that of the changing nature of the doctor-patient relationship and how it impacts on who decides on medical decisions. I'd like to kind of look at, look at why this has changed and um, to look at what the factors are that have driven these changes that have led us to this position and ultimately to question whether or not this has, this has led to a, what we would call a crisis of authority within the medical profession. So over the last 10 years, there has been a change in the doctor's role within medical decision-making. This was encompassed by the 2013 NHS England paper on shared decision-making, which included the phrase, um, no decision about me without me. Um, this moved to formalise patient involvement in care um, and was driven by several competing factors, both within the patient population and within the medical profession. So drivers from the kind of public side um, included an increased access to information, so-called Dr. Google, a plethora of scandals such as the Midstaff, Bristol Heart Scandal and Winterbourne, which perhaps impacted on the public perception of the medical profession. And perhaps this more esoteric point about a paradoxical increase in public interest in one's own health at a time when we've never lived longer or been fitter. And on the flip side of this, I think there has been a change in what it means to be a doctor. There has been a widening definition of the role of the doctor and the increased burden of responsibilities to include social worker, domestic violence advocate, prevent, obesity czar, to the point that actually doing medicine is at the bottom of a very long list. And in addition to this, there's been a change in attitudes towards medicine as a career, with the introduction of the European Working Time Directive changing the way doctors work and the removal of the traditional firm structure resulting in junior staff feeling less supportive. Um, in addition, the imposition of the new contract and the junior doctor strike has resulted in a disenfranchisation of the junior doctors, which has led to a generation less engaged with the process and perhaps less willing to make difficult decisions. But why should this matter when we discuss who decides? I would argue because the patient-doctor relationship lies at the heart of these decisions. And when this breaks down, situations such as Charlie Gard arise. I would argue that, therefore, there needs to be a reassertion of what it is to be a doctor and an expert, to put aside the glib lip service and engage the public in moral and ethical discussions about the sort of medicine that we want and the decisions that we want to take. I'm done. Thank you very much. Okay, Simon. Gosh, that was quick, sir. Speedy. Yeah, I've got lots more time. Oh, Mike, sorry, yes, even better. Good. Um, I'm not going to talk about Charlie Garda either. I, I think it just showed that there are times when you need you, and when you fail, you need a judge, and um, the system works. That's all I would say. I, I actually interpreted this because I thought, as you said, this was still going back to the kind of doctor knows best type of discussion, mm -hmm. so I'm going to go on that. There are times when 
the, the Charlie Gard case wasn't about doctors knowing best, it was about something very different. Um, but doctors know best. I mean, it depends on the question, doesn't it? I mean, doctors don't know best. If the question is, are Chelsea going to keep their um, title? They clearly don't know best. Or is it okay to have red wine with fish? You wouldn't ask a doctor to have a particular view on that. But there are areas where doctors at least have some expertise and occasionally might even know best. It's not impossible. And I know it's hard to even think about that as a possibility, but I would say there are times when that's true. And we know and we take it and because it's correct, that things have changed. And indeed, the question, does Doctor Know Best, only actually started to appear, if you do that lovely engram stuff, it only starts to appear in the 60s. Before that, it was assumed that they did. Um, in the 60s, it rises, really accelerates in the 80s, and has actually kind of peaked now, actually. We seem to have not quite so... It's not a question that appears quite as often as it did during that period. And we know why, because, you know, at best in those days, we had, you know, nice stereotypes like Dr. Finley, or at worst, it was Sir Lancelot Spratt, all that kind of stuff, and doctors issuing orders, as Renan has said. And we don't do that anymore, and that's true. And our current generation of medical students are completely now brought up um, on the concepts of autonomy, choice, empowerment, etc. Um, and we've heard you already say, uh, um, you know, certainly in psychiatry, it's axiomatic that we try as much as we can to do shared decision-making, advanced directives. I'm leading a review of the Mental Health Act now to see can we actually somehow make sure that advanced directors have some actual legal power that they can't be easily put aside as they can be and the no decision about me without me and all of that is so taken for granted that when one of our new generation of medical students is actually asked by a patient, well, what would you do, doctor? Actually, they look, they look incredibly uncomfortable. And it's a question that obviously they can deal with nearly every question. That one actually completely phrases them. They're not entirely sure how to answer. So, and, and there are areas, of course, where, um, you know, there isn't a simple answer. It isn't really obvious. And it is very much based on preference. Best treatment for depression. Um, drugs and psychotherapy are reasonably equivalent, but some people have incredibly strong views of one or the other. It's a very, very complicated thing. And in general, people do better when you give them the treatment that they want. It's a profound observation, that is, but it's generally true. Uh, questions of pain and, of course, end-of-life decisions are also ones in which there's never a really right answer. It's the, it's the least bad that you can get to, etc., etc. But something, though, is changed. When, for example, last year, the Royal College of Surgeons announced, and I quote, doctors should no longer give patients advice. They should just present a series of options. That was in response, in fact, to a, a legal case. I'm surprised no one was mentioned, but those in the trade will know about the Montgomery decision, which does have a profound effect on how doctors can advise patients. And indeed, the logical conclusion in that case is what the president of the Royal College of Surgeons said, that we now can't really give advice. We can only present options. In other words, it's just simply giving the choices and leaving the patient to decide. That sounds kind of good in theory, but to be honest, in practice... It isn't quite like that. Choice can be just as destabilizing as no choice. So my wife's a GP, and she was here yesterday, and uh, she talks about the fact now when someone wants physiotherapy, she has to inform them there are 12 separate providers of physiotherapy where she works, and the patient has to be told about all 12 and then decide. And of course they can't. 
Hardly anybody makes the decision when they're told you could be referred to four different hospitals for this condition and how you know it's up to you which you want. They don't go and check the CQC reports, probably because they're all rubbish, actually, to be honest, but they don't normally do that. They very rarely, Renan, have you ever known anyone go and look at the qualifications of the leading doctors there, check their AIDS index, look at their, look at their this, that, and the other? No, they don't do that. The commonest question is, can I park the car? That's the commonest question that will decide how far away is it and is it easy to get to, which is why no one will come to King's because the answer is no, you can't. No bloody chance. So you can have too much choice. Too much choice actually paralyzes and can actually lead to less, not more satisfaction. So it's a, it's a problematic then. You know, doctors then you know, aren't supposed to offer advice now, but the truth is, in so many consultations, that's exactly what the patient then does. They say, so what would you do, doctor? What would you do if it was you? Now our newly trained doctor who is a surgeon following the directorate of their president or the Montgomery say, oh, I'm sorry, I can't tell, it's not up to me. But of course, that's incredibly unsatisfactory and patients are generally asking because they want to know in those circumstances, hell, hell, why did you bother going to medical school if you can't tell me the simplest things like that? I should just as well ask my grandmother or someone ask you. So as I say, though things have changed, we've moved on. But actually, actually have we really? We've assumed that we're falling in esteem. We've assumed that we're rendering ourselves obsolete. We've assumed that Dr. Google, as you mentioned, means that now we don't, we're not needed, that apps, artificial intelligence, all of these things are going to take over and make, do us out of a job. I went to a meeting recently on AI and psychiatry. There are now computer programs that are apparently going to get so good that you won't be able to tell whether you're talking to a real therapist or a computer. I think that will only be true when you're talking, I don't believe that by the way, and I don't think patients actually would like that. There's still something about the actual intimate contact with a real person that will always be there. But just imagine that that was true. I said, well, we'll only know when that's true, when the computer starts to say it's getting stressed and isn't turning up, and that's just too difficult for me. And then that actually would be real. That would be a surprise when they also start, uh, uh, that, that, would be, that would be the issue. But we're not there yet, and I don't think we will. Um, we haven't um, done ourselves out of a job. We haven't gone down in the public esteem. Far from it, actually. We haven't joined that first circle of hell inhabited by estate agents, politicians, and journalists. We're just as high up as we ever have been alongside nurses. There's been hardly any change in the public's trust of doctors remains remarkably constant over a long time. We're not doing ourselves out of jobs. We haven't gone the way of, say, blacksmiths or wheelwrights or, or barrel makers, that we only exist now in some kind of Prince Charles-themed country park, you know, uh, like that. No, on the contrary. There are more of us than ever, and we need them more. And if we look at the figures, far from people turning to doctors less and less, amazingly, it's more and more. GP referral attendances of the GP have been steadily increasing for 20 years now, going up inexorably year on year. Despite all the electronic prescribing, despite all of those things, more and more people go to see their GP each year than they have ever done in the past. Um, A&E attendances have gone up 25% in the last five years, 23 million last year. Hospital admissions up 25% in six years, 16 million last year. OPD outpatients, 88 million people went to their outpatients last year, another increase. Overall, a million people see a doctor every 36 hours in this country, and it is steadily going up. So if we are that bad, if there's nothing that we do, if we're not trusted, if people don't actually want to know what we think, why do more and more people come to see doctors? 
Now then, okay, I said I wouldn't talk about Charlie Gard, but I, I would just end with that, though. I mean, that did teach one thing. So one thing I think we can all agree on is that we don't want President Trump telling us what to do and how to decide those things. Um, I didn't actually mind the Pope, actually. I thought that was fine. I mean, Pope's... You know, they have to believe in miracles. It's his job, isn't it? If he can't believe in miracles, who can? But doctors, our job is not to believe in miracles. Our job is finally to do the best we can on the evidence we have. And I think so long as we do that, we're always going to be higher than Trump and we're always going to be, I'm afraid, higher than the Pope. So I think, yeah, doctors do, they don't know best, but they often do know better. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like to listen to more of our podcasts, please visit academyofideas.org.uk forward slash podcast.